Father, we are here because of your word. You created by speaking. You um, differentiated us by your word. You revealed to us your law, your instruction, your wisdom. Your prophets um, called for your people to yield to your word. And the living word, Jesus, came and dwelt among us. And as this week, as we come out of the resurrection season and look forward um, to this year, we renew again our, our devotion and our dedication to him as our Lord and Savior. We pray that you will take this time as we study your word, use it to conform us to the image of your son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we're going to start a new series. And um, anytime one of these comes out, it's, it may not be good news for you. Um, so normally when I preach, I preach, from, I preach from my iPad. I usually just have a couple of notes. But this week we're going to start um, lo- a look at the book of John. Now, over the course of the last, how long have I been here? Um, the last uh, 2022, right? So the last eight, 18 years? Yeah, it'll be 18 years in November. Um, there have only been a couple of times that we've really attacked a book, um, a big, substantial book. Uh, we studied the book of Luke. Um, that took us the better part of a year and a half. We studied the book of Hebrews uh, on and off again. That took us uh, the better part of a year. Um, and, and so I'm often reluctant to get into a really, really in-depth study of a book because sometimes it can just go for a while. And people's attention spans wane and, and there's all kinds of fun things that happen. But um, I want to get into the Gospel of John this week and I have absolutely no idea how long it's going to take us to get through this book. Um, But rather than kind of, often I I will pick um, pieces of a book, and as I'm teaching through the book, I'll just kind of teach this part or that part or this part or that part. Um, In Revelation, we actually took it and split it up into two series that were separated by a few years. Um, We've done different things like that. But this week, the week after the resurrection, as we look forward to uh, Pentecost, um, 50 days, the, the first fruit, and all of the things that are coming, I want to get into this particular gospel, and I want to spend enough time in the gospel of John that we can just unpack it and journey with John as he reflects on Jesus. Um, So I anticipate this being a long series. Uh, I'll warn you ahead of time. Um, We will break it up from time to time with some other things that are going on. Um, But when the notebooks come out, that means that I'm, I'm forcing myself to take my time. Uh, that's usually what it means. If I had to actually put a pen in my hand and write on paper, um, I'm forcing myself to slow down. I don't know if you've ever noticed that I can sometimes operate at a very hectic pace. Um, but I want to I get into this book and I want to spend some time with John. Now there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, there are four Gospels, if you're unfamiliar with this. There are four Gospels in the Bible. Um, each of them tells the story of Jesus, but they tell it a little bit differently. The Gospel of Matthew um, is the, really the Gospel of the Son of David, the King uh, of Israel, in exile, returning to claim his kingdom. 
And it's written from a Galilean point of view. So it is just, it is written by Jews and it is completely saturated with the Hebrew scriptures. Matthew is just immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's almost written in such a way as to seem kind of alien to a Gentile uh, at that time. Now today, we live in a world where we've all had the Bible for 2,000 years, so that sounds really weird. But if you were to say to a Greek in 40 AD, well, the Torah says, they would have looked you at you, you and said, the what now, how now, they would have no idea what you were talking In fact, when Paul at one point preaches about the resurrection of Jesus, um, the resurrection of the Messiah, the Greeks in Athens think that he's talking about a goddess named Anastasis, which means to, to, that's the Greek word for resurrection. They have no concept of the Hebrew world. And, and Matthew is kind of written from that uh, worldview. The Gospel of Mark um, is... Christ opposing the world of Caesar. It is, it is Christ in opposition to the world system. And it's written for the Christians who are living in the Roman world, where the voice of Caesar is the voice of God, where, where Caesars are deified every time they die, um, where the emperor Vespasian, when he was dying, he laid on the bed and he went, oh, I think I'm becoming a god. And, and this, this world where people worshiped at the altars of uh, of, the, of Caesar. And, and Mark is written to oppose that. And so it has its own flavor. It's written to the, the Roman world. And then there's Luke, um, who writes about Jesus as a healer who turns the world upside down. The great reversal. Everything about Luke is upside down. The people that are supposed to hear, the priests, the Pharisees, the, all of those, those religious people, they don't hear. But, the, but the, the, the lame and the sick and the blind and the publicans, they do listen to Jesus. The world is upside down. And that, the Gospel of Luke is written very much to uh, what we would consider the, the Greeks. Um, the, the, specifically the, the Greek Jews who were very integrated into the society of the Roman world. And it's written in the point of view of turning the world upside down. But the Gospel of John is unique. Those first three, they're called the synoptics from the Greek word that means to see together. Sin, together, S-Y-N. Optics, eyes, all right, to see together. Um, they see pretty much the same story, but it's got a little bit of flavor. The Gospel of John is like um, when you have four kids and you go brunette, 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 redhead. John is different. It's unique. Now, for one thing, it's written much later. Uh, the first three Gospels, those synoptic Gospels, they're, they're written within, a, within uh, you know, two decades of Jesus' crucifixion. They're, they're written very close to the events. And, and you ask, what order were they written in? They were written in the order Matthew, Mark, Luke, in case anyone's wondering. Um, if you take a Bible course, a course on the Gospels, they will almost always tell you that Mark was written first. Um, I don't know why they say that. They have reasons, but they're all wrong. Um, the early church knew the order they were written in, and they put them in the order they were written in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Matthew is the earliest, then comes Mark, then comes Luke, and then comes John. John is written, though, in a different world. It is written in a different world than the, than the three synoptics. This is a world, and if you, you want to know the dynamics that were causing this, this is a world um, where there's been an unbelievably costly war between the Romans and the Jews. 
up until about the year 65 AD, uh, the Jews were very, very much integrated into the Roman world. Uh, Herod the Great, who in the, the Gospel of Matthew kind of gets a bad rap because um, he murders kids and stuff, um, so he kind of deserves it. But, uh, but Herod the Great actually sponsored the Olympic Games one year. He built two things that would have been considered uh, um, uh, wonders of the world. He built the Jerusalem Temple, which was the single largest artificial platform ever built up until that time and remained the single largest open platform built by man until uh, the, the uh, plaza outside of St. Peter's in Rome was completed in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, he he dredged, the, dredged the harbor of Caesarea Maritima um, which was an extraordinary effort just to create a trade route. When he died, um, when Herod the Great died, he was richer than the emperor. That's Herod the Great. Dru the Jews were super integrated into the Roman world. Now, you, you're sitting there going, I don't remember that from my Sunday school lessons. That's because they were wrong. Um, the, 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 the Jews were, in, in fact, up to 20% of the Roman legions were Greek-speaking Jews depending on where you were in the world. Um, the Jews were a very important group. But in AD 65 or so, things started to go downhill. And then there was a, a, a revolt. The Jews in Palestine, in what today is Israel, Lebanon, and Syria, um, rebelled against their Roman, the Roman authority. Now remember, they were members of the Roman legions. So this was not peasants rising up with pitchforks. They were Roman soldiers. And the emperor um, at the time, who was Nero, uh, sent the general he hated the most just to irritate him, sent him to Palestine to deal with it. And that, that, that general, Vespasian, and his son Titus absolutely crushed the Jews. And when I say crushed, I mean crushed them. Now Titus's, Vespasian eventually became emperor and his son Titus took over and his actual commander was a Jew. The guy who did the crushing. Right? He was not happy at all that they had wrecked his PR. And they sacked the city of Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. They pushed the stones of the temple platform, the top stones of the temple platform, off the platform, and you can actually see some of those stones that hit the pavement in Jerusalem. They're still there because they're enormous. They hunted down every single Jewish rebel until the last, ba last group of them were huddled atop of the fortress of Masada um, in the wilderness, and the Romans spent years building causeways, building ramps up to this fortress so they could massacre these people. And the Jews actually committed suicide rather than let the Romans kill them. Being a Jew changed after that. The Jews became actively hostile to the Christian sect, the ones who worshipped the Jesus as the Messiah. And they, like Jesus promised they would, pushed them out of their synagogues. And Matthew's Gospel um, somewhat kind of sets the, the pattern for how they had to survive. The Jews were reborn um, under the leadership of a rabbi named Yohanan ben Zakkai, um, where they redefined what it meant to be a Jew without the temple. 
and basically said, all that matters is that you are obedient to Torah and that you pray. No sacrifices, no pilgrimages. You just pray, you're obedient to Torah, you observe the holidays, and created what became medieval Judaism, rabbinical Judaism. And as this was all happening, Christianity was evolving away from its roots. It was, it was growing beyond being a Jewish sect where people worshipped this guy named Yeshua um, as the Christ, as the Messiah. Children were being born. They were being born to Christian parents. Jews and Gentiles were being forced together into the church because one was being thrown out of their synagogue, the other was not to be associated with the Jews and, and anybody associated with them, and they're being pushed together, and they're, they're marrying, and they're having children, and those children aren't Jew or Gentile, they're Christian. The world was changing. A new generation of believers were emerging. They no longer had to worry about coming out of a world. They were now a part of a world. The dynamic, although much bigger than this, the dynamic is very similar to the dynamic that occurs now with, with um, really with my generation's children and their integration in what we call the digital world. When my dad started fiddling around with computers in the 80s, he was a, what we call a, a frontiersman or a settler. It was, this was the first generation that had home computers. Now, some of you... Um, were computer nerds before there were computers at home. But you remember what it was like when those first PCs came out and you could have a computer at your home and oh my goodness, that computer was so powerful and it even had a floppy disk that you could load things and extraordinary, oh this is amazing. And that generation, they used computers um, but they used them differently. My generation, everything we did was on computers. We learned to type when we were in elementary school, but we didn't really have the internet when we were kids. But we would go to the library, still go to the card catalog, but we wrote all our papers um, on our computers and saved, and we didn't have to deal with the joy, very few of you have had to deal with this, the joy of writing a paper on a typewriter. Right? Isn't that fun? Today, you type, you, oh, I missed the line. I just go add a new line. Back then, it was like... <laughs> All right, the whole thing, you had to handwrite it all out and copy it and probably pay somebody that you knew who could type. Um, you, you, how many of you guys remember a world when not everybody knew how to type? All right? I mean, today, it's like... They're like walking away, going to sleep. They're not actually using words anymore. There's just a jumble of letters being thrown at each other and a bunch of emoticons that I don't know what they mean, but... All right. Um, everybody does it now, but I mean, even when I was a kid, typing was not something everybody did. I mean, this, this was, I mean, the pastor didn't type. I mean, he had a secretary who learned how to type so that she could type for him because he didn't, I mean, and then very much kind of now, you know, my, ki my daughter, Ariel, she lives in a world that she's never known a world without Wikipedia. She's never known a world without online libraries. She's never known a world where video games didn't go online. I mean, we listened to a, a history of, of the Nintendo, of the history of the, the company Nintendo on our way down to Virginia. And like, I was like, yeah, you know, there was a time when video games, they just were the same thing over and over again, faster and faster and faster. And there were no levels, you know. I mean, how many of you remember playing Donkey Kong? There were two levels. You just alternated back and forth between the two of them, and they just got faster and faster and faster. Now, I mean, her video game, she's playing a video game, she's like, oh, this video game takes 175 hours to play. And what's the point of the video game? When do you win? Oh, you don't win. 
you just, you just explore the world. I'm like, I do not have time <laughs> for that. I can barely explore the world around me that's in meat space. I don't have time for that. Well, the, these new generation of Christians, they were growing up in a world that was very different. And so when John, who is the elder statesman of Christianity, sits down to write to them, and he's going to tell them about Jesus, he's going to tell them about his best friend, the Son of God. Now remember, that's who he's writing about. His best friend, who he believes is the Son of God. John sits down to write. He says, how do I write this to this new generation, in this new world, in this crazy society we now live in? I mean, I just, I picture John, you know, as he gets older, he's like, well, in my day, it took six months for a letter to get from Rome to Jerusalem. Now you young whippersnappers are doing it in four months. Instant internet. You know, I mean, this world, I mean, this is, this world is changing. He sits down and he says, what do I say? How do I tell an entire generation of new believers about the extraordinary things that God was doing for thousands of years and then Jesus came and we suddenly realized in his resurrection and his glory everything that we had been learning had come to fruition. How do I convey to them what that means? And so John opens his letter with the very first verse of scripture that I ever memorized in Greek. And archi in hologos, kai hologos, in pros en theon, kai theon, in hologos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, utas in and archi pros en theon. He was in the beginning with God. And remember, he's writing about his best friend. John goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. He says, let's start at the beginning. How many of you ever felt like when you came to church and became a Christian, you got started in the middle? They're like, there is something going on here that I am missing, and I do not know what it is, and I don't even know who to ask about it. And people are having conversations about things. You ever gone to work with one of those companies that literally has a dictionary of acronyms? And they, they talk a language that you swear is English, but you can't understand. I remember going to work for Putnam Investments, and they described everything using the acronyms. So they're like, well, you know, this transaction is a BTB, but we got to REV the BTB and then go to BXB. It's got to go to A14 instead of A07. And then when we do that, we've got to avoid commingling the IRA and the SA. I'm, I'm sitting there at 19 years old going. <laughs> John says, let's start at the beginning. He says, in archi, in the beginning, at the foundation. Let's just start here. In the beginning was the Word. Now, because they're, they're Jewish and Greek uh, 
worlds are being blended together. John uses this word, word, the Greek word logos, and it's charged with meaning for both groups of parents. For the Greeks, the word is the ultimate reality, the truth, the statement of all that is. The, the halagos, this, this philosophical idea, it was the idea of, of everything and anything being, being spoken and, and the reality of spoken language. And for the Jews, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what does God do to create? He speaks and so for them, the Word is the creative power of God. It is, it is the reality of God stepping into time, out of eternity, to make this thing that we are living through. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And everybody goes, ah, oh, in the beginning was the Word. He says, in the Word, it was with God. Now hold on just a second there, John. The Word was with God? I mean, the God, God spoke the word, right? And John goes, no, that's the crazy thing. The word already was. It was equal with God. The word was God. And he, he begins to open a door. Now, most people read that triplet and they think that that's the end of the statement, but that's not what he's saying. The, the fourth line there that is in verse 2 um, he was in the beginning with God. That's actually the ending of the statement. He, he creates a bracket. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word was with him in the beginning. With God in the beginning. He, he's created a, a, a pattern there. He's evoking this idea that God... And the Word, Jesus and God, are one and the same. That Jesus is the one uh, who created, that, that God created, Jesus was there. They are intertwined in a way that we cannot understand. And, and this is one of the most important pieces of uh, John's Gospel that you have to understand, that John's Gospel has the absolute highest Christology. Christology is the beliefs of one Christ. What, who is Christ? What does it mean? Wh who, what does he mean? Who is he? Is he God? Is he man? How does that work? John starts from the absolute highest standard of Christology. He, he brings God the Father and, and God the Son together, and he never lets them separate. And so that causes all kinds of confusion because people are reading John and sometimes it's like, is Jesus praying to God? But God is there. And how does all these, all these mysteries that happen in the Gospel of John? Um, John wants you to live in that mystery. He's not going to resolve it. He'd been doing it for decades and he hadn't figured out how to resolve it. He wants you to, to see that. It goes all the way to beginning. And then in verse 3, all things were made through him. Isn't it annoying that he switches to pronouns? Wouldn't it have been much easier if he had said, all things were made by God, or all things were made through Jesus, but instead he just goes him. Because he wants you to dwell in that, that mystery. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was uh, anything made that was made. So he sets up a parallel. All things were made but through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You may not notice this. I didn't notice it for decades. John does a rewind of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Look. In him was life. Well, that's the last thing God creates. God creates man at the end, right? God creates animals. God creates birds. God creates fish and insects and mosquitoes for some reason. All right, God fills the ocean with fish. Um, he, he, he creates whales. He creates sharks. He creates, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but my daughter would correct me, oxalotls, which are her favorite amphibian because she's my kid. She's weird. Um, they, all of these, she has a stuffed oxalotl. You have to you have to look them up to see what they are. They're not cute. Um, but uh, the, he, he creates all of these things, right? He creates life last. He says, um, in him was life, and life was the light of men. Well, that's the first thing God creates, is light. And he creates it because the world is in darkness. Right? Now again, John is doing this extraordinary thing of blending these Jewish scriptures, these Hebrew scriptures, with the Greek worldview as well. And John um, knows that the Greeks believed, their worldview is that the world started in darkness and chaos and reason brought order. That, that the gods decided they chose to organize creation, all right? And then so man organizes things and thinks his way through things and processes things and creates all kinds of sciences and stuff because that's what we're supposed to do. That, that, and they describe this as light out of darkness. That you have darkness, you shed light, light gives order, organizes the universe, and so this is working on two different points of view. He says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, just look real carefully there. Because John is saying, the whole world is looking for light to resolve the, the darkness. They don't even realize they're in the dark. And that the dark has no power. That's a whole other thing that we could get into. And he's blending all of these ideas together. Sometimes people, you read one commentary on the Gospel of John, it'll talk, it'll talk about the Jewish side of things. You read another Gospel, another commentary, it'll talk about the Greek side of things. And they both make it sound like that's the only answer. I have always found that the most extraordinary literature is the literature that works in both worlds, whatever those two worlds are. That, you know, for example, a, a piece of literature, how many of you have ever suffered through a piece of literature that made zero sense? Somebody said to you, I've got to, you've got to read this. You've got to read this. You've got to read it. And you're like, okay, I've got to read it. Okay. You get it from the library. You read the first page. You go, I don't know what I'm reading. 
You get about 100 pages in, you go, I am so upset at this person for recommending this book. I do not understand. And then when you get together and you talk about it, they talk about, oh, the psychology of it and the balance of it, and isn't it literally perfect? Um, how many of you have ever read David Mitchell? None of you? Okay. He wrote Cloud Atlas. How many of you have heard of that? All right. Yeah, not a bunch of readers. Okay. Um, David Mitchell is an extraordinary sentence-level writer. Extraordinary sentence-level writer. His books make no sense. You can admire his literary work. And, and I do. I, I read David Mitchell, and I sit there going, I have no idea where he's going with this. All right? Um, the best pieces of literature... Now, how many... Let's, another question. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis? Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis is a master of writing a story that is both entertaining and profound. I still can't read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Resurrection of Aslan, without getting teary-eyed. It's just such a masterpiece of writing. The best literature is the one that works in two worlds, whatever those two worlds are. And John writes a literary masterpiece because it works in the Greek world and the Hebrew world and everywhere in between. John is going to bring together these two worlds the way that Jesus brought those two worlds together into the church. He's going to constantly marry them together. So at times, John's writing and you go, oh, that reminds me of the priests from Leviticus. And you're right. And other times you're going to go, that reminds me of the way that Roman legal cases worked. And you're right. At times, you're going to encounter things in John. You're going to go, that seems kind of out of place. And you're right. And somebody else is going to read it and go, well, that fits perfectly. And they're right. This book is a masterpiece. And it works on so many different levels. And it is written to draw us all to Jesus. And he begins at the beginning. It is so profound that Jesus' disciple decides to teach us from the beginning. Let me offer you a very quick application to this. When you find yourself in the middle, go back to the beginning. Say, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to bear. I don't know how to sort this Gordian knot of this relationship or or whatever it is. Go back to the beginning. You're in your journey as a Christian, and you're frustrated, or you're fuming, or you're angry, or you're confused, and you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. Go back to the beginning. You say, well, I didn't start at the beginning. I grew up in the church, so I just heard all this stuff. And then I decided that I was going to be a good Christian and a good person. And I don't know where to start. Start here. Start here. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things. Now, this is crazy, but when John says all John means all. And that means everything that had come before, the wars, the struggles, the Roman culture, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
This will become very important when John encounters Romans like Pontius Pilate at the end of the book. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As you read the Gospel of John, and as you go back to the beginning, watch the way that John describes Jesus. He will describe Jesus as the Lord. He will describe him as life. And he will describe him as the one who loves. Now he will use all kinds of other things. He will talk about light. He will talk about water. He will talk about wind. He talks about blood. He talks about all kinds of other metaphors. But ultimately it always comes back to Lord, life, and love. And as we unpackage John, as we dig into John, I hope that you will take this seriously. We can goof around and we can fool around, but I hope you get into this book and you start studying this book and you start looking at things and you start asking questions and sending emails and disagreeing and agreeing and conversing and dialoguing and talking in, church, in the car on the way home from, from church, talking to people in church, engaging people at Bible studies, getting together and whatever you're doing, but wherever you go and whatever you say, I just hope that we engage with Jesus on this journey. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I, I have a little announcement I want to throw out to you. It's going to be a, an opportunity for this. Um, we are going to, once a month, uh, we're going to get together for coffee on first Sunday uh, downstairs. And the purpose of it is to fellowship together with one another and to talk about Jesus. Um, to engage in what we're talking about and, and share together from the beginning on, just take that opportunity. Now, we want, we want you to take that opportunity casually through the, through the week. Get together with each other and talk about Jesus. It's never a bad idea. You say, what could I possibly have in common with the other people at church? Get together and talk about this. But we're going to, once a month, we're doing this. We're going to do it downstairs. And the whole point is not for everybody to, to come in and, I mean, sure, catch up and socialize and stuff, but we want to engage in the scriptures. We want to ask questions of each other. We want to we be talking about it. We want to we connect in ways that maybe we haven't connected before. Um, and, and hopefully take that opportunity um, to journey together with Jesus. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, you were in the beginning. You were with God. You were God. You are from eternity to eternity. And as we walk with you, as we journey with you, through this message from John looking at you, his best friend, the Son of God. Help us to draw out from your word more and more of who you are. 